Eddie Alvarez taught me a treadmill workout. It, it's I, I call it death by treadmill, but he calls it 10 and 10s. And it was um, 10% incline, 10 miles per hour, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. And you do three five-minute rounds of that. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Our guest today is Charlie the Spaniard Brenneman. He's an author, a public speaker, and a former UFC fighter. As a wrestler, Charlie wrestled at Lock Haven. He was a two-time state finalist and PA, which we know that means dude's legit. Wrestled at Lockhaven. And his story of how Charlie goes and speaks to school, speaks to students about his journey, really inspiring, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Fan of the week goes to our friend Bill RRL, who recently left an Apple podcast review, five-star review, Bill says, Ryan and his team have created the best wrestling podcast available. The deep dives into the backstories and the sheer volume of knowledge the podcast brings is mind-blowing. Incredibly inspiring and a true gift to wrestling fans and sports fans in general. Preach, Bill! We greatly appreciate it. And again, thanks to everyone who's left an Apple Podcast review. That really helps bubble up this podcast to wrestling fans just like you. All right, folks, let's give it up for the great Charlie, the Spaniard Brenneman. Just a quick update from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the episode. This episode is brought to you by Frog Ninja Wrestling Club. They were with us last year, and they're back to promote their upcoming summer camps. If you're in the PA area, check out these camps, amazing clinicians. The first camp is June 27th through the 29th at the Spooky Newt Complex in Lancaster, PA. Clinicians include Mike Evans, David McFadden, and Brian Pearsall, who's the head coach at, excuse me, the head associate coach at Penn and a former Penn State wrestler. The Frog Ninja Wrestling Club is also doing a second camp in Oxford, PA, July 11th through the 13th. One of my favorite clinicians for this camp is Morgan McIntosh, who's an Army Green Beret three-time All-American, and NCAA finalist for Penn State. He was also a three-time California State champ. He's going to be at the second camp in Oxford, PA. So register now at frogninjawrestlingclub.com. 
All right, Charlie Brenneman, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here, buddy. I uh, I was telling pre pre the actual recording that uh, I love what you're doing, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you. No, I was I was going through uh going through your content this morning, and I have questions related to building a brand, wrestling. But let's start with your some of the stuff you do in your keynotes when you go visit schools, and it's a lot of it seems to me like a focus on being a lifelong learner. Like, how would you kind of talk about what you what you talk with students and schools about? Yeah. So, you know, when I started, I'll start a little bit back when I started fighting, you know, when I look at it now, I think like I had an ace in my pocket in wrestling, as in I had wrestling as a background. So when I started fighting, especially at that time, you know, there were wrestlers fighting, but not like it is now. So it was like an ace in my back pocket. When I go into schools and speak, it's kind of like the fighting is an ace in my back pocket because it's a, a hook. It's a cool factor. It's a source of credibility. It's a wow factor for middle and high school kids that helps me get my foot in the door. So when I talk, I do assemblies often. I share my story and I, I may or may not get into that, but I have a lot of help from Mark Merrow, who was a former WWE wrestler, intercontinental champ, um, Johnny B. Bad. Um, marvelous Mark Merrow. He helped me a lot. And then I had another mentor to say, look, your story is your thing. So get comfortable with that. So I simply tell my story to the kids. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of life lessons about winning, about losing, about kindness, about choices, about perseverance, you know? So I, I bring my experiences from wrestling and fighting and explicitly say to them, this is not about wrestling. It's not about fighting. It's about life. And then I just go into my story and they take from it what they take from it. But it's, it's awesome. The, the feedback that I get from the kids. And like the satisfaction you must feel when you, when you walk out of there, knowing that you've impacted some young kids has to feel great. It's unbelievable. And I get asked a lot if I miss fighting. Uh, and I, I, I don't really, and it is a lot of what you just said. It's so fulfilling. And it, I don't know what your middle and high school years were like, but for most all of us, there's at least a little bit of confusion, challenge, obstacles. What is this? Who am I? Where am I going in life? So when I get the feedback from the students, it, it really, I mean, oftentimes it makes me cry because these kids are just, they're, they're, they're thirsty. You hear so much negativity about the world, about young people growing up, but man, when you hit them with the right thing, they're just thirsty and wanting to, to learn or to be supported or to be encouraged. So it, it really does lift me up yeah, as much or more as it does them. Well, imagine because like you're like, if you were a wrestling coach, you'd only be able to impact those 30 to 40 kids who went out for the wrestling team, but through an assembly, you're tapping into those kids who are far too shy to even think about going out for a sport. And they're probably the ones who need it the most. I think about that a lot in what I do. You know, post fighting when I figured out like, all right, what am I going to do? What am I going to talk about? You know, there were there was the the possibility of, I mean, like you had to choose it when you started your podcast. You know, what am I going to talk about? Wrestling, wrestling changed my life. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought that process through with what I was going to do, if it would be sports specific, if it would you be just wrestling, if it would be a little bit of both. So I do coach wrestling at my local high school, um, and I get to speak, and I have my own kids. So it's like, wow. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know, coach, I feel like that's what I, I am or I want to be, you know, to young people. 
And so let's get into your story a little bit. So two-time PIAA runner-up, you know, one of the toughest, if you know, probably the toughest state in the country, hands down. You go to college. Where'd you end up wrestling at in college? I wrestled at Lock Haven University. Okay. And once you got done with your experience at Lock Haven, what did you think the next 30, 40 years were going to look like for you? Yeah. So, it, you know, starting with the the two times silver, and I talk about that, you know, as heartbreak. And I, I relate to the kids, like sports, trying to be, hoping to be loved at home, trying to fit in at school, you name it, like that picture on my face on the PowerPoint, that's heartbreak. That's devastation because everyone listening to this understands that, right? Like trying so hard and just having it so close and fall away. And then I went to Lock Haven and it was still like this kind of down on myself attitude. So my career didn't really pan out, especially how I thought it would. But then my senior year, it was like I got it all together. I was at the bottom of the barrel. I got it all together, finished in the top 12, division one. And then post that, I I was in, in wrestling terminology, fat and happy. I was just like, I got into my Spanish teaching job. I was coaching wrestling at my alma mater high school in PA and uh, drinking a lot of soda and eating a lot of pizza. And I was pretty happy. And that's where I thought I would be. And then, Man, probably about a year and a half into it, I started to get the itch, you know, like postseason. You're like, oh, I'm going to stuff my face. I'm about, it, this was post-career, and that got old quick for me. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't – I knew I didn't want to do it, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then right around that time is when Frank Yeager signed to fight in the UFC. We wrestled in the same conference. I knew him. He was a regular guy. I was a regular guy. And I thought, whoa, like he's not a multi-time national champion – he's just like me, right? He never placed. I never placed. He did that. Maybe I could do that. And that's really what just totally changed the direction of my life. And, and before we get to that, cause that's really where a big turning point in your life, it looks like to me happens when you were coming up in high school and college, were you one of those kids like wrestling was everything for you? Like you were just totally obsessed and all, all, all the way into it. I would say yes, but in a healthy way. Yeah. You know, I knew, you know, at eight stepped on the mat, you know, I lost, came back the next year and it was pretty success from the beginning, but it was work. It was like success, but I was also working hard, guided by my parents. It was, it was a, a nice situation, mm -hmm. but yeah, I was all in and, um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew that's what I was good at. And that was my path in life, you know, academics and athletics. I only put the academics before the athletics because that's what like you're supposed to do. But <laughs> for me, yeah, man, it was all in. And was Lock Haven, when you look back on it, you know, wrestling changed a lot, you know, over over 15 years. And this era of training, like were you guys, was it a good experience wrestling at Lock Haven for you? Yeah, it was. So I got I got recruited from a couple of big name schools. I had my eyes set on Penn State from the beginning because that's my uncle wrestled there. It's not far from where I grew up but the, the, the money of the situation wasn't right. And at the, in the end, I ended up going to lock Haven and I really do think it was best for me because my kind of maturity or, uh, confidence didn't come until later in life. So if I would have gone to Penn state, man, I would have gotten eaten up. I, I wouldn't have been able to handle that schedule. I would not have been able to handle the the machine that it is, you know, and it's different now than then, but then it was still pretty good anyway. 
So I think going to Lock Haven and having Carl Poff and Rocky Bonomo, uh, it uh, it was good for me because they're both very down to earth humans in a small setting. And mm-hmm. and performance wise, it wasn't my best, but as a person, developmentally, I think it was great. And like you said, <clears throat> I can relate to not getting confidence till later because like even though I wrestled in high school and middle school early years college, even late years college was like, it, it just, it takes some, some people a little bit more time to develop that, that kind of innate confidence where some people have it in middle school, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I remember growing up, I grew up with the strip matters. They're, they're, they're not far from where I live, John and Jody strip matter. And see, I used to think of Iowa wrestling, you know, growing up as a kid, Dan Gable, I were wrestling superhuman robots, the brands brothers, they don't have feelings. They don't have emotions. They just, they're wrestlers. Like mm-hmm. that's what I thought, you know? Like Drago, I grew up loving Rocky, and 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 then seeing Jody go out to Iowa, it kind of like did something to me where I again it was that realization that oh wait man he's like me small town regular guy nice person wow he's doing great so mm-hmm. it was a slow process of unself sabotaging basically, and then when I wrestled did well the last year, and then also post i didn't mention this earlier but in between teaching and fighting i was on a reality show called pros versus joes it was on spike tv so glad you brought that up i was gonna ask about it i forget a lot to bring it up because kids i don't talk about that in the assembly because kids don't know what it is so i don't i don't even bring it up but um i remember training for that show man like it was the state finals or it was the round of 12 and i i i trained so hard for that and I went out to California and uh, I went out two times. I won two episodes. I remember looking at those guys and having this awakening, like you didn't train for this. Oh my gosh, you didn't train for this. I trained for this. I was doing like footwork drills, treadmill sprints, you name it. I was doing it as a you know teacher before school, after school. So all these little things over time just blossomed into, oh, hey, like winning is not for them. It's for me too. And then that perfectly helped me segue into fighting. The self-sabotage is so interesting. And even if you don't do it on purpose, a lot of kids are doing it. Even adults are doing it. You know, probably even more so adults. Like, why do you think that is? You know, I I read a lot of books. Um, It does get deep, but, but whether you feel like you don't deserve success, whether you feel like you're not good enough, it's just... Or, or a lot of times it's easier to lose because then it's less pressure. So I don't know exactly why I did it. I don't know if it's just part of my chemical makeup, but I just know, it, especially the finals, like I would write these stories in my head where I'd be like, all right, you got to the finals, your junior year, okay, you lost, you come back your senior year. What would the worst thing in the world be? The worst thing in the world would be to get there and lose again. All right, so then I just get in that negative like loop and 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 just essentially talk myself into losing, not like on purpose, but self-sabotagingly. And uh, I don't know, man, it's just a, a woe is me victim mentality. Just a lot of negative stuff that some people would be like, what are you talking about? I don't even have any idea what you're talking about, but my makeup was such that I had to overcome that stuff big time. Like why even, I know I, I feel the same way. It's like, why would you even go there? But for some reason, it's just, you know, one thing leads to another and, I think about it now, like these kids who some of the kids who are studs at like the, like the U17 nationals was last weekend and it was 
insanely intense. And some of the kids who are dominating, their parents weren't studs. But then other times, their parents are like, they they're they know everything about it and they're structuring every part of the life. And I'm like, man, that is such an advantage because a lot of confidence comes from parents, you know? And like when we went to tournaments, my mom didn't know a darn thing about it, you know, at the beginning. So we we're just kind of going through it. But it's interesting to look back and it's like, man, if I, not that I, have a lot of regrets, but like if I could go back and like know what I know now about performance anxiety and all that stuff, it's it's like a world of difference, you know. And it's it cool really that you're is. showing those kids that through your. Yeah, I I I feel very like I made a post about a visit, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and someone commented, "Do you ever have a bad experience?" And I was like, "No, I don't," because I, honest to goodness, every single time I get to do this, it's a thousand new kids in a different town, in a different school, a different like place in the country. And I, I, it's literally like maybe, and who knows what I'll be doing in 10 years, but like maybe wrestling provided a foundation that got me to fighting and this is what I'm supposed to do. So like every end point for me is just kind of like a launching point for the next thing. And for me as a human, I kind of have to have it like that or, or I'll just go stir crazy, you know? And to touch on what you said earlier, I have two kids now, nine and six. Uh, my daughter's nine, my son's six. And so I'm coaching wrestling. I'm going around to these schools. But then as a dad, it's the hardest because I see them at their worst. They see me at my worst. And so it's all of these emotions packed into it while trying to provide a path that is what I deem as a parent the best path without pushing too hard, but pushing hard enough and balancing all of the day-to-day -day stuff that's without a doubt the most challenging yeah because it's like you're you always hear kids talk about well my dad's my coach but he's also my parent like you're almost like the life coach and also trying to be the parent and i try not to be like probably too much life coach but still parent at the same time you know that's interesting and and there's also like a natural pushback at least you know from my kids or like i feel like kids in general like if mom says this, they say that. If I say this, they say that. So I'm playing with that too. And I, I, it's funny. It's funny now that I'm doing it and I'm like, oh, that's what my dad did. So I'll be like, if I say rock, my son's name is Rocky. I'll say, hey, rock, we're going to wrestling, right? He may say, yes, awesome. Or he may be like, oh, I want to play football, you know, whoever. So I'll just say to my wife, hey, I'm going to wrestling at three. Why don't you tell rock we're going to wrestling? She'll be like, okay. And then it's just like a, a roundabout way to approach it, you know, or I'll go up to a, another elementary coach in the room and say, Hey, can you tell him to do that? And then they'll go over and do it. And because it's not me, it's just less of like the whatever dad type thing. It's so, it's like, it's funny how that's actually true that that happens. You know, like you grew up hearing about it. And then when you have kids, it's like, Oh, sure enough, that is what happens. Yeah. I'm kind of a perfect example. I was coaching this year. I do the high school and the elementary and there was a dad, a first year dad, great guy. And his son was having a tantrum on the mat, like a pretty hardcore tantrum. And like, I knew the guy, but I didn't know the guy. And so I didn't want to step over like any boundaries, but his, it, it was like, it was, you know, just when everyone feels uncomfortable and that thing's happening in the mat and it's like, everyone's looking the other way. Next level and freak he, out. <laughs> yes. And he got up to go to the kid and I said, can I go? And I don't really know the guy. And I was like, yeah. and so I went and talked to the kid only for the sake of like, this kid doesn't know me. So the, he's not going to give me the pushback that he's going to give his dad only because he doesn't know me. 
And so maybe that will get him out of this funk where he can go back on the mat. And that's exactly what happened in that instance, thankfully, right? But it was just like changing the dynamics of the relationship and providing a different entry point can sometimes help. Definitely. And I think back, I'm like, well, my dad did help me. It's like, I'm just lucky that my parents weren't coaches, but now being such a wrestling guy, like I want to be a coach so bad for like, if I, if I ever do have kids. So it's, it's such a give and take. I tell you what, man, I see, you know, like Biff Walla, I'm in Pennsylvania. Biff Walla is a stud wrestler. His son's coming up. Um, Hunter Gano, a kid I wrestled with, he wrestled at Bloomsburg. His son's doing well. Uh, Corey Bainey, Jason Bainey, all these guys I grew up with, their sons are now wrestling. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's got, I have chills right now talking about it. Yeah. 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 But it's that like internal want, but then the realization that like my kids are going to, they got to do what they got to do, especially when it comes to wrestling, because it's such a grueling sport. It has to come from Mm -hmm. within them. Totally. Now, when you, when you're teaching, you're, you're a year and a half out, like you said, you're fat and happy eating and just enjoying life. You start to get an itch. Remind us what pros versus Joe's is. I, I remember it, but I don't remember it. Yeah. So pros versus Joe's, this was the end of 2005 into 2006. Pros versus Joe's was a show on Spike TV. I think they had five seasons and Spike is now what um, Paramount is. Back then I was watching Josh Koscheck fight on the ultimate fighter in 2004, you know? So this was, I, I, I went to, um, I don't know how I got it. I know I went to a coaching clinic in, in, I think it was at St. Ed's or something in Ohio, just to get out of teaching for a couple of days, to be honest. And then I got this flyer in the mail. Do you have what it takes to take on the pros? I sent this, like, I was trying to be like confident and cool email, you know, and I, and then it went back and forth and I ended up getting like these 20 page forms, all these documents, official stuff. And so I went out to California. I've got cast on the show called pros versus Joe's and it took professional athletes in a variety of sports, mainstream sports, and it pitted them against Joe's average athletes, myself being one of them. And then whichever Joe did the best against the pros, they won. So like I wasn't expected to be a pro. I just had to do better than the other Joe's and I ended up winning $20,000. And then I got back invited back. And then I won a 2005 Dodge caliber uh, no, 2006 Dodge Caliber with the cooler up front. That was the hot thing for a minute back then. <laughs> and um, and then that was like kind of a launching pad. That was a, a further like, whoa, I can do this now. I've got my mind right. I got a lot of energy. What am I going to do? How long were you out there? And like how long until the show aired from when you recorded it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was out there. I was out there twice. And the second one, I think, was for a... a I'm going to say between three and five days, each one. I did the first one, won the cash, came back. And I made four or five day, days later, they called me and said, we want to have you back out for the finale, but it's with a partner. So I brought my brother, Ben, who wrestled at East Strasburg University here in PA. And then we both went out again. And um, yeah, it we filmed in December of 05. And then I was seized season one episode nine and 10 and that didn't come out until may so there was a good five six months if anyone wants to watch them if you go on amazon and type in uh pros versus joe season one my episodes are number nine and ten it's fun i talk i can't wait i'm going it for my lunch Uh, break today (laughs) yeah it's fun man and i'm from central pa and um in between philly and pittsburgh 
And when you get to Western PA, you know, we talk a little bit differently. And so my wife points out how, how central PA I sound when we watch those <laughs> videos, man. It's hilarious. It's cool because, you know, that's, I had a buddy who actually him and his dad won the fear factor and it was like two years after they wow. did it to when it aired. So that's wow. six months. Isn't too bad, but it's, it's funny because like directly that had no impact on your MMA career. But to me, it seems like it was like a momentum boost, like a confidence, like something impacted you to take that a little bit further. Is that fair to say? A hundred percent. It was a, a, a culmination of probably getting older, uh, being bored in my job, seeing Frankie sign, being on pros versus Joe's understanding the connection of preparation and confidence, and then actually winning on a, the national screen for like a big prize, because I had talked myself into this negative loop of get there and lose, get there and lose, get there and lose. And then with my last year of college, finishing in the round of 12, I could, I lost to Johnny Hendricks in the round of 12 on my best, best day. And, you know, if he was injured, maybe I beat him, but probably not. So I left wrestling feeling pretty, pretty happy and content about myself. And then being on pros versus Joe's, it was just like, all right, world, what are we going to do? Man, that's a brutal blood round match, Johnny Hendricks. Who beat Johnny yeah. Hendricks? Like he was in the finals basically every year. I think he was a three time champ or yeah. two time champ, three time finals. Yeah. But, uh, that was his freshman year. Man, that's that's a. Uh, it's interesting how like everything just kind of builds, right? And so when you started training MMA, it looks like you were in it into MMA about three years before you made it to the UFC. Were you like teaching and training, or just training for a while? So 2006, I think it was my first amateur fights. 2006, I was still teaching, and then I taught all through that spring into the summer of 2007. My first professional fight was the summer of 2007. And then that fall, I enrolled in grad school at East Stroudsburg University. So when I was fighting amateur, I was still teaching. And it was kind of cool. It, I mean, it was just like the movies. Um, Here Comes the Boom and then uh, Warrior, I think, is the other one. But like, I, yeah, it was, it was just like that. YouTube, like the kids knew what YouTube was, but it's not nearly what it is now. You know, but it was it was real life version of that. What were your like teachers saying? Are they like, are you are you out of your freaking mind? Or are they? Uh, oh, it was cool. Most half and half, probably. Yeah. You know, the, most people. The the, the thing I t tell is the people around town, people my parents would see at Sam's Club or Walmart or the gas station. You know, what is he doing? He is crazy. And then my mom. I think my mom, my dad would always, especially with wrestling stuff, just supportive, like intelligently supportive, right? Like make sure I'm doing it the right way, etc. And then I think my mom just was blissfully unaware of fighting because I went home one day. So I saw Frankie signed to fight. And then I went home, called my buddy. And I was like, Hey man, I'm going to fight in the UFC. And like that, that conviction set it in stone. And then I told my parents and the only thing my mom said was, okay, well just get your graduate degree in between. And I was like, okay. Okay. Like being thinking she has no idea what I'm talking about. She doesn't know what this thing is. Cause she would have never been that like cooperative toward it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what set it all in motion. And then how did you go about like the training? I mean, cause to make it to the UFC is the elite of the elite. I mean, obviously. And, and so great wrestling career, but did you start doing like Muay Thai or Jiu Jitsu? Like what was the training like to, to make that kind of jump? 
Yeah. So I started in my hometown, you know, mid middle of Pennsylvania. I started in my hometown with some uh, Muay Thai and some jujitsu just to get my feet wet. And then when I went to grad school, I started training. I would commute over to Philadelphia. It's it almost a two hour commute, but I would train with Eddie Alvarez at um yeah, I wouldn't do it every day. I do it a couple times a week, but I would go to Fight Factory in Philly and, and Eddie Alvarez and, and Zach Makovsky and some other stud fighters are from there. And then eventually I connected with, I was just as in wrestling, as in speaking, as in acquiring a second language. I'm like, who can I connect with? Who can I go to? Who's the best? How can I get on their radar? And and so I did that with Frankie. I did that with uh, Eddie and Frankie. And then I would just meet, and this was when Frankie was in the UFC, but I would just, again, I'd drive two, three hours in Jersey traffic is terrible. Um, but I would train with him and a guy named Chris Ligori. And Frankie at that time was still kind of bootstrapping his training as well. And I served a role as being a hard-nosed wrestler that would just show up and train hard, basically. And then um, little by little, I would get connected to through Frankie to Ricardo Almeida's gym, Henzo Gracie in New York. I trained at AMA Fight Club, uh, which is home to Jim Miller, who's still fighting in the UFC. He's got quite a, and the most wins in the UFC, I believe. And it, I was kind of hodgepodging, putting together the training. But yeah, I would train wrestling for sure, because that um, base-wise of cardio and not getting um, tired. And then, yeah, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, boxing, you name it, we were training it. And a thing, it's a little bit of a callback to what we were talking about earlier with the confidence. I I am was so afraid of fighting, right? Because as a kid in elementary and middle school, there was this group of kids who would always just like, Charlie's the goody goody. Let's threaten them constantly, all day, every day. And um, it's like bullying, I was, kind of, or a legit yeah, bullying. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I tell the kids that in school, and and like how you respond to it kind of dictates where you go. And so I was so afraid of fighting growing up. And so professional fighting, I was so afraid of getting tired. And then that fear drove me to train at a level that I never did when wrestling. Cause if you get tired wrestling, you just, you just get tired wrestling and then they just you know drive you into the mat, but they're not kicking and punching and beating up. So that level of fear in fighting really drove me to an obsessive level of being in shape. And was it a lot of like running or was it just fighting and that kind of thing to get you in shape? Everything. Um, yeah. Strength and conditioning, fighting rounds, shark tank. Um, Eddie Alvarez taught me a treadmill workout. It, it's I, I call it death by treadmill, but he calls it 10 and tens. And it was um, 10% incline, 10 miles per hour, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. And you do three, five minute rounds of that. So if anyone wants to give that a try, give it a try. And I, if I could, so my, my litmus test, uh, maybe like three weeks before I would start doing that twice a week. So that by the end, like a week before my fight, I could do it without resting, without stopping. And that told me, okay, you're in shape. What you would sprint nonstop like that, but it's 30 seconds on 30 seconds off, right. For three, five minute rounds. Yeah. And I, I would do that successfully. Wow. Yeah, it's hell. It's death by treadmill. It's very sounds difficult. brutal. So, it's how many fun. fights did you have before the UFC came calling? Uh, I think I was eleven and one, ten and one, or eleven and one. And how did that work out? Going to that jump? 
Yeah. So I started out local, New Jersey, couple fights, and then they sanctioned it in Pennsylvania. So then I fought basically in my hometown, which was awesome because I'd have, you know, selling tickets is how you made a, a lot of your money. So I would sell a couple hundred tickets and it was just awesome. It's like being the hero in your own hometown. It was so cool. Yeah. And then getting the call of the UFC it, for me, I, I didn't have, and maybe it was because of wrestling. I don't know, but I didn't have really any UFC jitters. I had been like on center stage wrestling and pros versus Joe's, but the, the, the realness of it, I do specifically remember my first UFC fight in Charlotte. I remember walking around that afternoon with my now wife, maybe even my then wife. I don't think it was, I think it was two years before we got married, but, um, it, it did hit me like, wow, I'm getting in a fist fight tonight in an arena with another guy who's trying to beat me up. And it was a, 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 a pretty lonely feeling. Really? How long? Yeah. And like, that was something you distinctly remember though. A hundred percent. I have chills right now. It, it It's like you do. And I've heard GSP say it before. I'm not, I Charlie, not a natural fighter. I'm an aggressive person. I'm an intense person, but like, Nate Diaz, I think, loves fighting, mm -hmm. right? There are guys that love, Eddie Alvarez loves to fist fight. I love to compete, and fighting was a way that I competed. And so it was like the training, yeah, I'm rocky, yeah. And then it's like, ah, oh, I got to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and this doesn't continue unless I do well fighting, so I have to win the fight. But it's very lonely, very lonely oh, and scary. Oh, man. And especially when you're... I mean, everyone says to walk out, but I'm sure like the leading up to that, like at that point you might have some energy going, but like, you know, when you're walking around six hours before it's, it's pretty chill. That's it. That's what people don't generally think of. It's not just like when you're in the ring, it's before that it's the months that you're going to bed thinking, what is Anthony Johnson doing? Right. What is Eric Silva doing? What are they, what are they thinking about? And then the, the, the worst part for me, the scariest part for me is, and also I'll tell you what, talking about fear openly and honestly to kids does a lot because they think that being afraid is uncool and they're a wimp, but it's not, it's, it's just like natural, right? A lot, so many people are that way, but I, the, the, the weirdest, scariest part is in the hotel room. You know, if, if it's, if it's a, a four o'clock start or a six o'clock start, you, you, you get shipped to the arena in like increments and so we'd have to say goodbye to everyone at like noon or one. And I remember like that goodbye in the hotel. It's like you're maybe going to your death. Like <laughs> it's just such a lonely, hugging, crying, like good luck. It's, it's crazy because like you had had other fights, but like when you're on that stage, it's just a different level of, of stakes, it sounds like. Yeah. And there's an arena and thousands of people and fans and wow, as big as it gets. And it's like. Oh, this is the real part of that, mm -hmm. you know, and then you get on the bus and some people are laughing. Some people are real quiet, subdued. And then so you ride with your opponent. No, they split you up. They do corners oh. like that corner on that bus, this corner on that bus. Okay. So that's how that works. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, it may have changed since I've been there, but yeah, they, they do everything they can to stagger you and your opponent so that you're not sitting beside each other, hanging out. Well, even, you know, that world, which, you know, far better than me, but that world has probably changed a lot since the time you were there, like UFC. And I mean, maybe, I mean, if they were still on spike, that's way, that's a, that's way back, you know? So, uh, has it changed quite a bit though, from what you've seen and what you've heard about? 
Yeah, for sure. I actually just had on my podcast, Benil Dari. I haven't published it yet, but Benil Dariush, who wow. is, uh, I actually fought him and then he's in title contention, but I asked him this exact question. Has it changed? But, but yeah, I mean, it's like professionalized, I think is a way to put it, you know, with the, the performance Institute, with the nutrition guidance that they get, um, you know, the pickup from the airport drop off. We used to know the guys by name and they would be like vans and stuff. I'm pretty sure that's more professional now. So yeah, the ins and outs have changed. Well, even like you said, like Frankie designing his own training, like basically those guys back then were their own coaches because I graduated high school in 07 and the Militich fighting system was in basically in my hometown, the Quad Cities. And my, in like a third cousin, Steve Rusk was the wrestling coach there. And so we'd go in there. I met him. You have, okay. He's a, he's a beast. But so, yeah, you're coming out of your senior year of high school. You're thinking you can go with anyone, right? And so during this like summer of 07 and kind of 08, I would, I was into it a little bit and I would go and watch. And we actually had, there was a local strip club where on Thursday, if you fought, you got in for free. And so we would always fight on Thursday to be able to go. And uh, like, this was the kind of ragtag system it was back then. It yeah, was I actually, it's funny you mentioned that I trained at Milicic for a week, probably around that time. I think I was teaching. So, we, I mean, we may have been in the same room. I'm pretty wow. sure it was 06, 07. Cause I knew Mike Sisnilevich from college wrestling and um, yeah, I went there. I remember training one day. I didn't know. I think just a teacher who used to wrestle. I remember Josh near smashing me so bad. Uh, and I just, I almost start crying. I was just like, this is a crazy world, but we did go to a fight. I don't know if it, I think it was a strip club. It was on the other side of the strip club or, or yeah. the bar, whatever it was. Yeah. It was a was separate, uh, it was in a, yeah, yeah. You'd walk in like this hallway and to the left, just kind of like a warehouse where it's just a cage and it yep, was BYOB. Wow. A hundred percent. I was there. That's so crazy. Yeah. Yep. I remember, uh, I'll never forget. This is when Jens Pulver was, was he, he was one of the, one of the top dogs and, like the crazy thing about Militich was that everyone would just train together. Like you could be like someone off the street or like a guy fighting in the UFC. But I remember uh, Jen's getting on top and like not really trying to submit me, even though he could have been just sweating into my face, like yep. a good five minutes. I'll never forget. It was the most disgusting thing ever. But, but my whole point is that those guys were making their own schedule back then, like their own system. Like, I mean, Militich was the head coach, but a lot of it was just on your own. And now it seems like there's a team of guys around it. Yeah. And, and, and guys do still do it their own way, but as a whole kind of collectively, yeah, it's much more professional. Some guys still, you know, I was just watching some of the embedded this morning, working out some guys still kind of do it their own way. Some guys are their own coaches. I was listening to, um, Oh shoot. He's a stud. He just had a fight. I forget his name. Long lanky kid. He just beat up Cheeto, um, Cheeto Vera. Uh, I forget his name, but, but no, um, Cheeto Vera's last loss off the top of my head. Anyway. Um, I love the embeddings, by the way. Yeah, they're awesome. Amazing. Uh, he was just saying he he is his own coach and he dictates everything. So, you know, guys, some guys are still sparring balls to the wall multiple times a week. I remember Max Holloway a couple of years ago saying he doesn't really spar hard. So there still is personal touches on it. But as a whole, it's it's certainly progressed. And when you were, when you were fighting, were you cutting a lot compared to your wrestling days? Like, what was that like for you now that you were in a, like an adult cutting? Yeah, I would, 
as an adult, Connie, that's a funny way to put it, but it's true. You just get more mature about it. And as a kid, I can remember yeah. not wanting to work out because I was too lazy, lazy. So I would just starve it off. <laughs> Whereas yeah. as an adult, you'd hopefully be doing a little bit differently. Yeah. And you just, well, you hope, all right. Not always, but you just like, just do like, it's less whining and complaining and just like, this is a part of the business. Let's do this. Uh, Corey Sandhagen was the fighter that I couldn't remember. But um, I cut. It's probably similar to wrestling, my my cutting, but it's it was different in that you fight once every couple months. So there's really a week that sucks potentially, you know, if you do it right. A lot. I'm very consistent in everything I do. The way I live my life is very consistent, very organized, maybe a little obsessive, conservative in the sense of. When it comes to money, I make sure I have my bank accounts in order. I make sure, you know, like organizing, whatever. And with fighting, I never understood, like, why am I going to get, like, fat and lazy, feel like garbage, and then get in shape and fight? Like, I want to feel the way I feel all the time because I want to have an optimal kind of attitude. So I would, you know, I would cut anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds the week of the fight. But that 15 pounds is is a lot of water. And for me, I was a small, it seems like no matter what weight I'm at, I'm small. I was a small welterweight. And so I would fight at probably 178 pounds, weighing in at 171 the day before. I would, you know, put on maybe eight to 10 pounds, but buff out a little bit. Whereas when I fought Rumble, how was he near, at 170? <laughs> yeah, I, I was his last fight at 70. I'm nearly certain. And I didn't get it straight out of his mouth, but I've heard from a lot of people that he was over 200 pounds that night. <gasps> and I fought Johnny Hendricks and I've heard that he's over 200 pounds on fight night. So I'm giving up a fair amount of weight to those welterweights. And then I went down to lightweight 55. It was the same cut. I was not smaller than the guys I fought, but the, the cutting weight was more centralized and it was kind of easy because you were coming in full of water with a lot to shed. Yeah. You know, I, I like that you're you mentioned you're very structured and disciplined. So I'd love to get into some of your some of your daily routines, but I gotta imagine that helps a lot, right? So you're you're probably eating clean anyway and when you're coming into that. Yeah. I actually eat cleaner now as a like a human, like post everything, because to be honest, people start dying, start getting diseases, and you're like, whoa, you know, you see the fragility of life. Yeah. And um, but back then, yeah, I, I lived a pretty, uh, trust me, I love Pepsi. Pepsi was my weakness. I, I still enjoy it, but Pepsi and sugar, man, that was my, that was my crypto cinnamon toast crunch. Wow. I could live on that stuff. But yeah, it certainly helps when you come in not totally broken, you know? And when you got done with, with fighting, did you know at that point you were going to go on to be a, a speaker, an author? Cause you've written three books you have an incredible brand, your website, all of it's like, that's more the behind the scenes stuff. I want to uh, maybe ask you about another time, but like, how did you decide to build the brand as like a, as a speaker and an author and all of that? Yeah. So I did not know what I wanted to do. There was a, a period, you know, I have said to my wife being my wife is very hard, right? Because there's, you know, good aspects of being driven and being intense, et cetera. But then there's also like day to day that makes it very difficult. And so I had a period, probably about a year and a half, two years post-fighting where I did not know what I was going to do. And I was kind of like, not floundering, but I would make the commute to Philly, which is uh, which is like, hey, mother-in-law, 
can you watch my daughter today? Cause I'm going to train in a sport that I don't even know if I'm going to make money at anymore, but I still kind of want to train. So it created a lot of conflict and it took me a long time to get to the real long time, year, year and a half to get to the realization that I don't think the opportunities are there anymore. And that's what really turned my kind of changed my direction is the opportunities. Like I made a, a decision in my mind, like if I can fight, make 10 grand, I'll do it five to show five to five to win. But I was literally getting offered one and one. And I thought what? like, this is a, this is a sport that I'm no longer interested in. If the most you're going to give me, you know, I had an okay UFC career, but I still had a UFC career and a thousand and a thousand. It just wasn't kids ask me why, you know, in the Q and a stuff, kids ask me why I stopped fighting the opportunities first. And then secondly, like my priorities and values as a human, they just shifted. I used to drive, like I said, in and out of New York, up and down New Jersey. I would spend five hours in a car to train for an hour because I was dead set on if I'm training, I'm going to train with Frankie. I'm going to train with the Millers. I'm going to train at Henzo's. I made us like, I need to be with the best people. And then eventually it was like, man, if I'm not making a thousand bucks, I'm not driving anywhere, you know? So it Even five started. and five is a tough to make a living on. For sure. I mean, and like really tough. Yeah. And I just, we had a daughter and I had gotten knocked out. So I started worrying about my brain and it was just like, I never like made a, a retirement announcement or anything. I just slowly started to drift away from the desire to fight and more so into like, not intentionally, but over time, how can I use what I did to help people? Because, I mean, I'm sure you get messages doing what you're doing with this podcast. Pe people are living, right? And you're just doing your thing, but you're inspiring people. Like you, you inspire me. I'm listening yeah. to your podcast. I'm like, this is, this is great. This is awesome. So I would get those messages from people because there's a lot about fear. There's a lot about adversity. There's a lot about limitations and belief. And so I thought, whoa, people are interested in that stuff. I'll use that stuff in a way to build my next life. And so I wrote my first book, started learning about speaking, what it even means to be a speaker and website development and marketing and emailing software and you name it, man. It's It's been a, um, a hodgepodge of stuff thrown at the wall moving forward. Do you still get nervous before the speeches? Or are you good at this point? You know, I do. Yes to both of the, those questions, right? I do get nervous because every single middle school, every it, it's different, right? So even groups, like I spoke to two groups of 500, uh, nine through 12 yesterday. And every group within each school is different. One group, the ninth and 10th graders are, yeah, yeah. The 11th and 12th graders are silent and introspective. And that does not necessarily mean they liked it. They didn't. It's just they're different. So I get nervous only because they're different every time. But speaking of consistency, repetition, I have a, I used to record a daily podcast. I've recorded probably 3000 podcast episodes. So when I hit record and I just talk, it, it's like a natural thing. So if you put me on a stage and I'm talking, if I forget where I'm at, it doesn't really matter because I'll just have another story over here. Only because I've read so many books, I've practiced speaking so many times that it just kind of flows. 
And so, yes, you I have get hours of material. So much material, it would put people to sleep. <laughs> I mean, to your point, I was looking at your podcast feeds and I had to double check because the one was like a thousand, two thousand episodes. Yeah. I'm like, two thousand episodes. Like, yeah. That's, and I love how you have, you have a podcast. It's, it's, forgive me if I'm butchering this, it's more for adults and it's kind of your mm -hmm. journey. Then you have another one that's more geared for children and that the, the description of it is just gold. That a lot of times if you have a feeling that you want to give up, it's a sign of weakness and you hit that straight on and you say it's not. And I think that's just so powerful because even as an adult, I think if I want to give up or if I don't want to prep for a podcast, it's a sign of weakness, but you're saying it's not, which is very reassuring. Yeah, and if you, you know what? On the um, the Spaniard show, so Spaniard show is for grownups. Spaniard school is for kids. And when I say kids, I mean middle and high school. I used to do a daily episode on the books I was reading, so I would be, you know, like every day I'm producing an eight minute episode, and and then I would do a kids portion, and I started to realize, you know, reading I read kids books, picture books, and kids chapter books as well as grown up books, and it was like this is the same stuff, you know, the 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 the. Winnie the Pooh, or I don't even know what that was just the first thing that came to my mind, but all these kids' books behind me, they're teaching lessons about adversity, lessons about friendship, lessons about hard work, lessons about uh, figuring out who you are. And I was like, that's the same thing like that I'm dealing with at 40. So it is universal, but I package it in a way where I'm talking to a kid versus I package it in a way where I'm talking to an adult. And I got to say, your, <clears throat> your reading list we have some similarities. It looks like you're a Ryan Holiday fan, but that John Wooden book you got to your back right is yeah. one of the most, I send that book to everybody. I freaking love that little blue book by John Wooden. That's yeah, a, that's so tremendous. much gold in there. Yeah, I, I love reading. That's kind of like a sub, the business side of what I do. You know, I speak on stages. I've written a couple books. I love reading. And, and I hope someday to make, reading like an equal part of my livelihood, hosting a book club, writing more books, you know, being able to actually generate income from the book side of it, but it just hasn't picked up yet. Um, and so I'm, I'm continuing to build that, but really zeroing in on the speaking and the student podcast and then exploring, like trying to build my YouTube channel. I'm, I'm just, it's constantly learning and trying to figure stuff out. YouTube is such a beast, isn't it? It's just, it's its own world. And I was just on talking to my buddy Stalemates yesterday, who does a great job on YouTube. That's his world. And it's just like, you know, podcasting is one thing. And then even within podcasting, there's like the art of interviewing, there's the art of preparation, and then there's the marketing of the podcast. And then YouTube, it's like, you think you can just drop a podcast in there, but it doesn't work like that. It doesn't really perform that well, you know? So there's a, there's a whole art to the thumbnail, to the title and, uh, yeah, that that's that's it's a very interesting platform. It is. It is. It is its own thing. Right? Easily, your my my I could have a business running ads on Amazon, like a whole business, not just like a whatever. Like there's enough to learn to do that successfully. To do the same thing on YouTube. To do the same thing speaking. Mm -hmm. to, to podcasting. So like, that's four full time jobs that four different people could make upwards of hundred hundreds of thousands of dollars if you do it right. Right. But there's only so much one human can do. And the one thing I was going to ask you about is if I look through all your pictures, looks like you have some connection. I don't know how, and maybe this is just, is just coincidence, but 
I'm the biggest Jocko fan in the world. I see pictures of you and Leif. I see pictures of you and Jocko. How did that all happen? So it happens the same way success in anything happens, right? By trying. So I reached out years ago, probably 2013. I, I know I was in my old house. I found a piece of contact information. I got turned on to Jocko, however, and I don't even know, probably through Rogan or Tim Ferriss, et cetera. I kept emailing politely, kindly, a, a, a someone, an email, uh, Jamie, <laughs> in in their organization, Extreme Ownership, saying, hey, could you, and I'm pretty naive, right, at this point in time, like, hey, Joe Rogan, will you be on my podcast? It just, I didn't realize that it just doesn't work that way, right? Yeah, yeah. And so- I'd be like, I was emailing, hey, is any chance Jock will be on my show? And then, no, I'd reach back out a month later, like given enough space in between. Right. And eventually she was like, well, Jocko can't, but what about Dave Burke? He was a top gun pilot. I was like, well, that'd be awesome. So I had, I actually went to his house, rolled, had him on my show. Then through Dave, I ended up going to one of their musters. And mm -hmm. then at one of their musters, which is their live events, I met Leif and briefly met Jocko. And then- you know, Jocko's in the stratosphere of super famous, um, hard to reach, hard to contact. And then somehow I struck up a connection with Leif during these interactions to the point where I have Leif in my phone and I call him and we talk and and I'm a, a legitimate friend of his and I seek advice from him and guidance from him, et cetera. And so I, I've had a little bit of interaction with Jocko, not much, but being in that world of having access to talk to Leif is like... You know, when you're an aspiring author and podcaster, it's huge. Huge. There, There's something so just pure and simple about Jocko that I just love. Like, it's no thrills. It's just to the point. And I, I can't get enough of Jocko. And he's he's the best, man. Like, And what he's done as a personal brand is so inspiring. He's got Origin. He's got all of the, the Jocko fuel. The jo I mean, the kids' books. It's like, God, the guy just gets a lot done. Yeah. And honest, to, to be honest, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? If I see farthest by standing on the shoulders of giants. So whenever Dread, so I have a, a kind of behind the scenes partner I call Dread. And um, when we're talking, it's like, all right, what do we want to be? You know, Joe Rogan is an inspiration to me, being able to speak openly and honestly about how he feels, access Definitely. to interesting conversations. And then it's like, all right, I love that. I love what Jocko's doing. I love the kid aspect of Jocko's doing. All right, what can we do? Well, we can develop a kid's book series. Right. If that model works for him, well, then I'll do my version of that. So I, mm -hmm. we are developing, we have one out now. We have like, we're going to put out eight or 10 of them. These short, easily readable middle school age books that are based on my life story, but they're fiction. Because if you can get a kid to buy into you as you're bought into Jocko, right? As I'm bought into Jocko and Rogan and this podcast, et cetera. That's like, yeah, man, I want whatever you're putting out. If you yeah. put something out, if you write a book, I'm going to buy your book because I want more of what you have. So I treat my visits to schools in that same way. If I can hook these kids and then like provide them stuff that I think can help them in life, then it's a win win for everybody. Yeah. That's, that is so powerful to think about it that way. And thank you again for the kind words that you listen to the show and you're a fan, man, that, that means a lot. And like you, man, it's just like people ask me the same thing. Like how'd you start it? It's like, well, just start reaching out to people and then Next thing you know, someone passes it along. And then the other thing I do is audio documentaries. So I just did one on Henry Cejudo. Oh, this and is the first part, man. It's thank like, you, brother. Thank you. Raleigh and I'm, I, uh, Raleigh's a big help on that, man. But like the music got, the, the guy who does the music, Gary Lanelli, 
he's the same guy who did the score for OJ Made in America. And I just found him on SoundCloud and cold messaged him on SoundCloud. And sure enough, he gets back in touch and you know he's been selling me songs ever since. So it's like just random things like that. You never know where you're going to end up like that. It comes to trying, just trying. Um, you know, I did a school event out in Utah and they had a, it's ELS, English is second language, but I think it's ELD, English language development. A lot of kids from South American countries and I speak Spanish. So I was giving a presentation to them in Spanish. I didn't know what I was going to say in terms of content. They were like, just talk to the kids, have fun with them. But I, I built on the, like learning a language, learning a culture is the same as learning fighting or learning wrestling. It's putting yourself out there. It's not being afraid to fail. It's letting go of your ego. It's trying again. And with what you're doing, with what I'm doing, that's it's the same recipe. There's mm -hmm. no secrets. That is the secret sauce. We're getting near the end of time, and I want to make sure we hit on two things. How <clears throat> how do can people get in touch with you? And, you? and do you only do like things in Pennsylvania, or like would you come out to Chicago for an assembly? Like, how does that work if a school wants to book you? Because we have a lot of teachers listening. Yeah, I, I that's I'm glad you asked that. Thank you. It's perfect. Uh, yes, I I travel across the country. I you talk. Uh, oh, yeah, you California, said Utah. Yeah, yeah. Colorado. I'm going to state of Washington, like two hours, maybe an hour or two below the Canadian border. So I'm all over. Um, but my website is charliespaniard.com and Charlie first name, Spaniard nickname. And then there's a, a booking pay or a speaking page. You go there, you see the information and um, yeah. And, and reach out to me. I'm scheduling now for the fall. I have a, I'm scheduling a couple of spring and then the fall. But mainly middle and high school. I do elementary too, and there I just do one in Colorado, man. It's it's a lot more fun, a lot more active. I get the kids up, exercise and training montage. But wow, um, that's a riot. It's it's fun. I'm gonna post a video here soon from my last the elementary one I did. But uh, my social media is at Charlie Spaniard. And then the thing that I I really try to stress is I put out a weekly student podcast. I put up those videos and shorts onto YouTube. So as a teacher, if you're looking for like plug and play content, I put that on YouTube. My wife, when she was when during COVID, she was like always looking for these videos. And I was like, I'll just create these videos. So if you're a teacher and you're looking for like the content we're talking about, perseverance, uh, character development, Charlie Spaniard on YouTube and and there, there's plug and play. You, you It's there and the books. Awesome. And the books... You've written three of them. Which one would you recommend folks starting with? For students, for your middle and or high school students, probably Go Figure, which is the the fiction story based on my life story. If you're a wrestling fan, you'll probably appreciate Driven. And then after Driven, World's Toughest would be the next one. I love that that phrase. First of all, the phrase lifelong learner is such a such a cool thing because the ability to learn is probably the most it's not undervalued because everyone's like, yeah, that's great. But like, no one really talks about like the art of learning and just continually being curious and like figuring things out. But like your whole phrase is uh, your, your, one of your brands is like lifelong learner and, and the world's toughest lifelong learner. That's, that's perfect, man. I think that's so. Yeah. Cool. Whenever we came up with that, uh, uh, Mark Merrow goes by America's number one school presenter. And so I said to my partner, I was like, what about uh, uh, America's, toughest lifelong learner and he was like how about worlds i was like yes that's yes. it <laughs> so is there a whole subculture of like super famous like school speakers and presenters or is it more like dispersed probably dispersed 
Um, like, is there like a top five, like schools are always trying to get these people to come speak or it's just kind of random like that. Not that I know of, I'm sure there are, but I don't know them. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be that guy, by the way. Oh, I, <laughs> so dude, I think it's that guy. the more I thought about this morning, you know, my, my day job is tech sales and kind of having a tough, tough go of it yesterday. And I was like, sometimes you're just like, man, I'd like, I could just rent, uh, like jet skis on the beach. But then this morning I was like, man, that would be such a cool thing to be a school speaker. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of work, but one, you get a, you get a thrill out of it. Like when I close a deal, I get a rise out of it. And I need that in my life. Just yeah. like you get a rise from a new podcast or a new, a new mat, a match. But at the same time, like you're like the connection you feel and how good you must feel when you get in your car driving home must be unbelievable. It really is. It's one of those things where, well, I wake up the next morning. I'm like, and then I remember, ah, oh, like yesterday, I was just in um, uh, nearby, a couple hours away, and I was like, oh man, Scranton, PA. I thought that was awesome, and it just yeah. gave me like a little boost, you know. Yeah. So it, it really is that way. Well, Charlie, it's been an honor to have you on, man, and you're welcome back anytime. We've, I know we've have a lot more to hit that here. Have a lot more to talk about, but man, it, it was so glad we got this first one on the books, and, and like I said, man, we'll have you back on. Thanks for coming on. Likewise, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was presented by Frog Ninja Wrestling Club, who's putting on two camps this summer. Go to frogninjawrestlingclub.com if you're in the PA area and want to learn from some of the best in the business. Frogninjawrestlingclub.com. Register for their upcoming summer camps now. We'll see you later this week with a new episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Peace!